The clock says it's 2 o'clock. My watch says it's not quite, but I'm going to take advantage to, of uh, the, the gap between the two to welcome you to the class today. I'm Dan Bouchelle and uh, President of Missions Resource Network, and we're very grateful that you're here. Today is the second of a three-part class, and we're going to pretend like this is a world where people go to the same class three days in a row, uh, even though they don't, mainly for the people who may listen online and download the class. So not all of you were here yesterday. Unfortunately, that means there will be some things we talk about today that may not completely make sense, uh, uh, but uh, hopefully you'll be able to pick up that as well and get some benefit. Um, uh, quickly, Missions Resource Network exists to help disciples make disciples all over the world. Uh, we help local churches develop a vision for mission, whether they're an American church or an international church, and then help connect them with and train them and train people to make disciples all over the world. Uh, we do what we call mobilizing, equipping, preparing, and caring, which is just paying attention to what God's doing in the world and trying to tell other people so they'll join him in doing that, and then equipping the, those churches with the ability to do that well and training the workers and then caring for the people who do the work. Uh, and we try to work collaboratively with a lot of other ministries and, and uh, organizations to advance God's mission together. Uh, today, uh, our speaker is going to be Dr. Mark Hooper. Uh, yesterday, I laid kind of a background of how we have shrunk the gospel down to one element uh, of a message designed to offer forgiveness for people who feel guilty. And uh, that's an important part of the gospel, that people who uh, come under conviction have realized they've broken God's law and they've done wrong, they need to understand they can be forgiven. They need to understand that there is uh, a way to be justified before God. But the gospel is a whole lot bigger than that. It's actually an event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And how that event comes to you as good news depends on how you experience the brokenness of the world. And so for people who come from an honor-shame culture, they don't experience brokenness the same way. And people in a power-fear culture don't experience brokenness the same way. And a lot of Americans don't. And unfortunately, we're often broadcasting on one channel and people are listening on a whole bunch and they're missing the message. And that really comes home to us in many ways with immigration, a lot of issues that are coming at us from people who come from an honor-shame culture. And there are a lot of honor-shame elements in American culture that we don't recognize. And a lot of hurts that people carry that are not being touched by the gospel because we're not preaching good news to how they're feeling hurt. So Mark, this is an area real special for him. Uh, Mark was a missionary uh, in uh, Mumbai, India for many years. He's taught anthropology and missiology and been a functioning missionary, trainer for missionaries. He's worked for us for about, what, 12, 15 years, something like 12 that? Years. 12 years. Um, he has his PhD in anthropology from the University of Mumbai, and I think you're really going to be blessed to hear about how different the honor-shame mindset is and how the gospel speaks to an honor-shame background. So uh, with that, I want to welcome uh, Mark Cooper. Thanks. Well, good afternoon. I know it's sleepy time, uh, and so I'm going to do my best to keep you awake. I'm not going to do any dancing or shouting, but uh, I think the subject is going to be keep um, relevant enough and interesting enough to keep you awake, and I hope it is, and I'll try not to pour cold water on it. Um, the things that I'm going to talk about in terms of um, honor, shame, and, and uh, recovering the lost gospel, we're, we're not preaching a different gospel, and this, as Dan just said, it's not that the way we've understood the gospel is wrong, it, it's just a narrow part of how the gospel should be portrayed. And, and it's important for us to understand that there are present 
there, there are aspects of many different ways of thinking about uh, worldview in every culture. Okay, you can't just say an American worldview is only this because your kids don't think the way you do if you've got any gray hair at all. Okay, uh, I'm uh, I love my kids. I've got four grandchildren. I know I don't look that old. Uh, yeah, I do, but uh, but uh, I, my kids don't think the way I do. Uh, that's okay. I don't. I didn't think the way my dad did. Uh, seems like we think a lot more alike the older I get. But anyway, uh, that's another story. But the idea of every generation goes through different worldviews and culture uh, aspects. And, and what we're talking about, when we talk about a shame-based culture or a guilt-based culture or a fear-based culture, uh, it doesn't mean that because we're a guilt-based culture doesn't mean that we don't have shame or fear in our culture. We do. Okay? And it manifests itself in different generations in different ways. So I said all that to say, when I make a general statement, I, I understand there are exceptions to that, okay? And, and so don't, uh, don't get hung up on, but I know somebody down the street. I, I get that. I understand that. Or my kids think different. But we're going to make some generalities about all this. I went to an Honor Shame conference last summer, and I got to know a guy that wrote a book that you need to read, okay? A lot of what I have presenting to you today comes from... Werner Mischke, and the name of the book is The Global Gospel. And if you haven't read that, it's must read for this subject, okay? Uh, Werner Mischke wrote The Global Gospel. And even if you're not a missionary or you're not even involved in missions and you, you, you don't even think you'll ever meet somebody from another country, although you probably <laughs> will, okay, if you live in America in the 21st century, uh, but even if you think none of this will apply to you, it's going to give you a different perspective on the book because, oh, by the way, the Bible was not written in your culture. Yeah. The Bible was not written in a guilt-based culture like most of us come from. The Bible was written in a shame-based culture. And if you don't understand that, a lot of the Bible will just go right over your head and you'll think you got it and you didn't get it or you didn't get the deepest meaning of it. Okay? And we're going to illustrate that a little bit today. Dan and I are going to talk more about scriptural ways of seeing this in the stories of Jesus tomorrow. Okay, so tomorrow at 2 o'clock, we're going to use two or three examples from Jesus' life, and we're going to illustrate what we've been talking about yesterday and today. Okay, so why is the good news not good news for the rest of the world? You remember this guy? Um, Obama, bin, uh, what is it, Bin Laden? Uh, I'm not Obama. What is that? I really like Obama. This is Osama bin Laden. Okay, that was not uh, a Freudian slip. Okay, that was uh, I, anyway. We won't get into politics. Uh, this guy wrote a letter to America, and he said, "You're very well aware that the Islamic nation, from the very core of its soul, despises your haughtiness and arrogance." He wrote this to America. And he said, if Americans refuse to listen to our advice and the goodness, guidance, and righteousness that we called them to, then be aware that you will lose this crusade Bush began, uh, just like the other previous crusades in which you were humiliated by the hands of the Mujahideen. Do you remember what this is talking about, the previous crusades? Yeah, we're talking about those crusades in the, in the 1100s, 1200s, and 1300s. They, they, Muslims have a much longer memory than we do, Okay. Uh, and, and so uh, there, you're going to lose just like those in which you were humiliated. Look at that word, humiliated, by the hands of the Mujahideen, uh, those that were fighting a jihad, 
okay, defending Islam. All right? Fleeing to your home in great silence and disgrace. You can see honor and shame all through this, okay? Uh, in the next quote, uh, you've got this guy, uh, Ali al-Ansi, and he wrote this in response to the Charlie Hebdo attack in Paris, you remember that? Where they had uh, drawn cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, which defiles Islam. <coughs> Muhammad will never be, there is no photograph, there is no uh, drawing, there is no uh, caricature, there's no pictures of, uh, of, of Muhammad anywhere that would be defiling him, okay? And so uh, when they attacked Charlie Hebdo, who had drawn these cartoons of Muhammad in a, in a disparaging way, uh, it was seen as defending Islam. And so he says, uh, Ansi denounces the dissolute Kufar who insulted the chosen prophets of Allah and caused Muslims to wake and roar out of rage. Congratulations to you, O Umma. Umma means community of Islam for this vengeance that has soothed our chests. Do you hear the shame that they were living under, the dishonor that they were living under? Congratulations to you for these brave men who blew off the dust of disgrace and lit the torch of glory in the darkness to defeat, uh, of defeat and agony. A lot of this comes out of this, this dishonor, this, this shamefulness, this disgrace that Muslim people have felt, not just for decades, but for centuries, okay? And, and they feel like they're second class to a Western world or second class to a Christian world, and all of this is because they want honor. They want respect, and they feel like they've been shamed. Um, there's... Uh, this Dr. Gilligan, uh, not, yeah, not what you're thinking. Um, Dr. Gilligan wrote this book called uh, Reflections on a National Epidemic, Violence, okay? Uh, and he's talking about America. He's not talking about Muslims, all right? So when we talk about America, I have yet to see a serious act of violence that was not provoked by the experience of feeling shamed and humiliated, disrespected and ridiculed that did not re represent the attempt to prevent or undo this loss of face. Do you know what loss of face is? Mm -hmm. Our Asian friends know this much better than we do, but, but we have it in America. Uh, loss of face is feeling shame, okay, in a community. Guilt is a very individualistic thing, but shame is a very communal thing, okay? Uh, and loss of face is... I don't lose face if nobody knows about it. I only lose face if everybody knows about it. Okay? You can sin and feel guilty and nobody else knows. But you can't really feel shame unless somebody else knows. You get the point? Okay. And so this idea of loss of face, no matter how severe the punishment, even if it includes death, they're willing, violence comes from this feeling of shame, even if it costs them their life. They're trying to to retaliate against this loss of face, this, this punishment uh, that they've incurred from the community. And this is, this is true of every school shooter that we've had in the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is true of anybody that's tried to blow up uh, a United States building like in... Uh, Oklahoma City, those were not Muslim terrorists, those were homegrown terrorists, you know, who didn't like the United States government. Uh, this is true of, 
of anybody that is filthy. He says there's been no violence that hasn't come out of a feeling of shame and humiliation. Okay? And, and so the secret that violent men would die in order not to reveal, that the secret that they would die in order not to reveal is that they feel ashamed, deeply ashamed, chronically ashamed, acutely ashamed. This is what Dr. Gilling is writing over matters that are so trivial that their very triviality makes it even more shameful to feel ashamed. Have you ever been ashamed that you felt ashamed? That's what we're talking about. So that they are ashamed even to reveal what shames them. And why are they so ashamed of feeling ashamed? Because nothing is more shameful than to feel ashamed. <laughs> and, and it's almost humorous, but it's not humorous. It's very serious. And this is what erupts in violence. They're ashamed to admit that they feel ashamed, and so their only response, or they feel like their only response, can be violence. This can explain a lot of the gang wars in, in our cities. Young men that are disrespected or young men that don't feel like they have purpose or fulfillment and they're, uh, you know, they haven't done well in school or maybe they don't care about school and, and they just want recognition. They feel ashamed about things, their status in life, their economic status, their, their, their racial status, whatever status they feel ashamed about and, and there's nothing more shameful than to feel ashamed. And so this is what Dr. Gilligan says is the cause of a lot of violence in our society. Well, when you come down to another book that I want to draw your attention to, uh, Tangling and Deering, these are two ladies that wrote this book on shame and guilt. I want to compare the two, and I want you to see the difference. They have a chart in their book that looks like this. And um, it, actually, if you buy the book and look at it, these two columns are the other way around. Shame is here first and guilt is I put guilt first because this is the one we identify with and I want you to see the difference. So I flip-flopped their chart for the sake of this PowerPoint. But I, we're not going to read this whole chart together, but I want you to see a couple things. Look at that top, and we're going to talk about this in the next slide, but the specific behavior of guilt is specific. I did, and the emphasis is on the word did. I did that horrible thing. That's guilt. Shame is... I did that whole thing. Uh, when you look at uh, the degree of distress, guilt is less painful, shame is more painful. Uh, you have tension and remorse and regret with guilt, but in shame you have this shrinking feeling, this, this feeling small, feeling worthless, feeling powerless. There's no hope in shame. There's often hope in guilt, but there's no hope in shame. Uh, let's get down here to uh, concern via be the other. Concern about one's effect on others. When you're guilty, you, you feel like, okay, how have I hurt other people? Here you're concerned about others' evaluation of you. It's the loss of face. It's, it's, it's more self-focused. Okay? Uh, we're trying to mentally, under guilt, we're trying to mentally undo some aspect of our behavior. We want to make something right. But in shame, we're trying to undo some aspect of self. I'm not worthy. It, it's, it's about me. It's not about what I did. It's about me. And so our motivational features is a desire to confess, apologize, or repair the broken relationship. In shame, there's a desire to hide or escape or even strike back, and that's where violence comes in. Do you see the difference? And maybe you've even felt the difference. And, and I think when we have a gospel that only addresses this 
And we don't address this. We're not preaching the full gospel. Okay? And so, just to highlight a couple of those things, I did that horrible thing, that's guilt. I did that horrible thing is shame. Guilt is more likely to lead to healing behavior. Shame is more likely to lead to hurtful behavior. And these are tendencies. There's not, these are not, these are general generalities. They're not, you know, it's true in every instance. There are exceptions to these. But this is what the major difference is between guilt and shame. And we have to understand this because we don't have a gospel for shame. We only have, or typically only have, a gospel for guilt. And so, I want you to see what this picture represents. It represents a lot of people that are being displaced and are refugees in the world. There are 60 million displaced people in the world today. 60 million. What they're fleeing is violence and war and bloodshed and chaos. And and as they flee the violence and the bloodshed and the war, in many places... They're, they're fleeing places that are having cultural upheavals. Islam doesn't work as well anymore, and there's rebellion or a, um, what do we call it, Arab Spring? Is that what we've, we've referred to some of these things? In America, you know, some of, the, uh, some of the traditions and things that have happened that are going on in America don't work well with the next generation, and there's upheaval and chaos. Think back to the 1960s if you're old enough to remember that. Uh, some of you are. Uh, you know, there was upheaval and chaos in our society. And it wasn't just about civil rights. There was also the sexual revolution and, and you know, peace, love, and the Beatles and all that kind of stuff. And, and there was the political revolution of, against the war in Vietnam and, and communism and all of that kind of stuff. There was great political upheaval and there was a lot of shame in our culture. And the violence that we see on television and the news and and, and everything, it, it's present all, the, I, I watch the, the news every day at 5.30, I try to if I can get home in time, and I watch the 5.30 news, ABC, David Muir, he's one of my wife's man crushes, uh, but uh, uh, she has three, but I'll, that's another story, uh, but anyway, uh, David Muir is always talking about violence, I mean, every day on the television, on the news, the, the national news, it's about a shooting, it's about a war, it's about a bomb, it's about what could be a bomb coming from North Korea. Uh, it, it's about whatever this is. Okay, it's usually about violence. And many Christians are heavily influenced by this and live in a state of fear. And so when we talk about what if the only gospel we know to preach addresses the problem of sin and guilt, is this by default ignoring the very root of the problem of violence, sin and shame? And so violence is just what I wanted to start with today, and, and we kind of really nailed that one down, okay? But let's broaden it beyond just the scope of people caught up in violence or in the tendency to have violent behavior. And let's talk about these cultures that Dan talked about yesterday. If you remember the, the map that Dan showed yesterday, most of the world is not in a guilt-based society. It, most of the world is in a shame or fear-based society. And if our only gospel we know reaches sin and guilt, what about the rest of the world that's living in sin and shame? What about the only the kids or the grandkids that live under the roof of your house that don't feel guilt 
they don't think that really applies to them, but they might feel some shame about who they are, their self, and their identity. A quick story. Um, young missionary in India in the 1980s, me, uh, and I'm studying with this, this Hindu family. And we begin to talk about the gospel uh, in particular, that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we're talking about Jesus died for your sins. And that's wonderful, except these people say they don't have sins. And so my job now is in the, you know, I'm in the unenviable position of trying to convince them that they do have sin when they don't think that they do. Because they've done their dharma. Dharma is not married to Greg. Dharma is, you know, their duty in life. They've done their dharma. They have good karma. When they get reincarnated in the next life, they're going to come back as something better, maybe even a cow, which would be the ultimate, okay? They're going to come back as something better. They don't have sin. They don't have guilt. I don't have a gospel that's relevant for them. I'm talking about Jesus dying for their sins. And they said, that's awesome. So, okay, no big deal. They want to hear about Jesus because they're spiritually minded people. But I don't have a relevant gospel. I'm talking about this. This is the world they live in. And so, simply stated, the church is weak in its understanding and response to world plagued by violence or a world plagued by the lack of guilt. Okay? The shame will lead to the violence. That's their only reaction. But we also live in a world that's very full of people that don't have guilt. Have you noticed this about the new generation? I'll talk to my kids and I'll say something like, you know, well, why did you do that? Well, Dad, it's not my fault. Well, okay. My daughter drove home one day with her car with the oil light on. She drove about seven or eight miles with the oil light on. The oil had all drained out of her car. Her brother had changed the oil for her, and the brother didn't put the oil filter on tight enough, and the oil all came out of the car, and she drove it. And she got about a block from her house, and it just quit. I said, why did you drive it? With the oil light on. Well, Dad, it's not my fault. Nobody told me to stop the car when the oil light came on. You know, it's not my fault. Well, all right, it's not your fault. I didn't scold her too bad. I'm trying to be a good dad. But, I mean, $2,000 later, we had to put a new engine in the car, you know. And that's what happened. You know, it's not, it's not my fault. It's okay. It's not your fault. There's no guilt. My dad taught me that Anything I did, I was guilty of, okay, growing up. And so we, we have a different worldview in some of these places. Uh, Dan, do you want to address this about the church? Uh, Dan um, has been in a preaching ministry role a lot more than I have. I've been more in a missionary and a teaching role, but Dan? Well, I mean, a couple of things that came to my mind. Um, our churches don't understand Black Lives Matter. Partly because they don't understand the humiliation of being singled out, pulled over for nothing that you didn't do. And the response is, well, you didn't get arrested. You didn't get convicted of anything. What's the big deal? The deepening of the shame. And the response is, our lives matter. We're looking for honor. And we're like, well, that has nothing to do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with the gospel. The gospel is about getting your sins forgiven so you go to heaven when you die. <laughs> and... Uh, we are absolutely missing a message there. 
in our culture, in a guilt-based culture, we think the solution to everything is more laws and more law enforcement. Let's pass more and better laws and let's have tougher sentences in crime. And for people who are coming out of a place of shame, you're only adding to shame and you're driving them to more violence. And they're going to people who will give them honor and community because honor and community happen together. So you're actually feeding gangs and you're feeding underground activities where people can be given honor and status and position, power and relevance because we don't understand what's broken. And we don't know how to speak hope to that. And we just don't see how the cross is relevant to that. We don't understand Jesus who lifts people up and gives them honor and the power of the church to give honor, to say you are welcome, you are included, you belong here, your life matters. That is a word of the gospel. And so much a conflict we have in church comes down to who did wrong and who's at fault instead of how do we give honor to people who feel unheard, invisible, disrespected in this church. All of this stuff is deeply relevant to the gospel, to the cross, and the way that God glorifies Jesus in the cross and works through the cross to bring glory to people who have no glory any other place in the world. And so as a society and in our churches, unless we can understand the deeper and wider ramifications of the gospel, we are missing a generation, we are missing the world around us, and we are totally helpless in terms of dealing with so many of the societal and church problems that we have. it's not like guilt goes away. Of course guilt goes away. Still, the cross still deals with guilt. But the human problem is so much bigger than breaking laws and getting acquittal for that. So, anyway, a couple things that popped in my head. And if we, if we continue to perpetuate a, a gospel or a church environment that doesn't understand a world plagued by violence and doesn't address this idea of shame, we're going to continue to be irrelevant. And our kids are not going to come to church because it doesn't matter to them. Okay? It doesn't matter to them. And we're not going to reach the immigrants and everybody else that lives just down the street from our church buildings because what we're preaching doesn't matter to them. But you know what? That's not the gospel of the Bible that we are preaching. Just guilt. It's not all of the gospel. Uh, again, I'm not saying what, we're, what we've grown up learning about guilt and innocence is not true. It, of course it's true. And the Bible talks about that. But it's not the full gospel. And so, in this, this statement here, despite the fact that the Bible offers a powerful cure through the gospel of the kingdom. I, I want you to see, this is, if we draw cultures, this is our USA Christian culture. All right? And if you don't think that's specific or unique, you know, go outside of USA or talk to somebody that's not a Christian, okay? Uh, uh, but, and, and we, we have overlapping with us, and this is not a geographical map. This is cultural and people living together. We have uh, Asian uh, honor-shame cultures. We have African honor-shame cultures and fear-based cultures. Uh, we have Latin American, uh, and I'm just going to put Latino uh, uh, cultures that also have honor, shame, based, you know, there's guilt there too and all that. But notice this. This is also the culture in which the Bible was written. A Middle Eastern Asian culture, if I can spell, 2,000 years ago. <laughs> all right? 
And we're trying to read that through these lenses. And guess what? When these folks read that, they don't have to read it through these lenses. And we have sent missionaries for a long time here and here and here that have taught them to try to read the Bible through American lenses and it hasn't worked very well. And they would be better off just reading it from their own culture. What Jesus says, what the Old Testament says, is much more understandable to an Asian about honor and shame than it is for an American. And we come in as the teachers. And they can understand it even better than we can understand it. Um, finish this statement for me. It comes from Ecclesiastes. Solomon wrote, The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep, God and keep his commandments. The word fear there is not to be scared. It could also be translated honor. We have changed the, the message of the gospel. The whole duty of man is to love God and accept his forgiveness. That's not what Solomon said. Solomon said the whole duty of God, uh, the whole duty of man is to fear God or to honor God and to keep his commandments. And what happens when you keep the commandments of God? Your honor is restored. You join in the honor of God. And so this is very important. Um, as we look at shame being the underlying catalyst of violence, and we look at the Bible pre uh, presents and speaks to a world of violence, you know how much violence is in the Bible? Does the Bible address that? Read your Old Testament again, okay? Uh, there's a lot of violence there, and, and God addresses that, and God speaks to that. And so the gospel of the kingdom specifically speaks to humanity's longing for honor and covering of shame. And we could go story after story. This pathology of sin and shame and violence can be cured by the gospel of the kingdom. But we don't know what that message is. And we haven't been telling that message. From Adam and Eve to Revelation, there is a problem of honor or restoring honor to those who have been shamed. And that's the message of the gospel. The gospel is the redemption, not just the forgiveness of sins, it's the redemption of mankind's honor, of honor of the creation of the world. Okay? Romans 8 talks about the, the, the creation, the earth, groaning. Groaning for what? what, what does the creation have guilt? No, the creation didn't do anything wrong. The world around us didn't do anything wrong. But it's, it's longing for that honor in which God created it. The goodness that God created in it. Okay? And so, that's the gospel of the kingdom. This shocked me when I first saw this diagram. Okay? Get your head around this diagram. Red is Old Testament. Blue is New Testament. This is the word guilt. Uh, guilt-based words. This is the word shame. Old Testament, about 150 times the word guilt occurs. In the Old Testament, double that amount. 300 times the word shame occurs. Old Testament, the word guilt, I mean New Testament, the word guilt appears 10 times. Guilt appears about 10 times in the New Testament. The word shame appears 25, 30 times. I don't know what the exact number is there, but it's, it's, it's a lot more than, than guilt. 
you see how shame is much more of a topic in the Bible than guilt is. And so guilt-based words versus shame-based words tell you a story. We've only focused on the gospel on this, and look how much of the gospel we're leaving out. Do you see that? And, and, and that just shocked me. I've talked about, and I don't have that slide, but, uh, but another word uh, correlation that we might add to this, uh, and I mentioned it a minute ago, is we talk about love being the essence of the gospel, and we're going to talk about this in the context of Islam in just a minute uh, as we get towards the end of, of this presentation. But we talk about the gospel in terms of love when the scripture talks about the gospel in terms of honor much more. Much more. God wants to restore our honor, not just get our love. Now, love is, this is a part of the gospel, okay? Don't get me wrong. This is a part of the gospel that's not anti-biblical, all right? That's not unbiblical. This is biblical part of the gospel, but this is even more. And it's not one against the other. These two are not in competition with each other, but we have not emphasized the honor part of the gospel. We have the love side, but we haven't the honor side. This is really important concepts to really understand this. Let, let me illustrate it this way by I alluded to it a second ago, but honor status reversal. And so as we talk about honor status reversal, the idea is that there's a distinct feature or dominant idea in an artistic or literary composition where people have a reversal. They, they, they come from, a, uh, from honor and they're moved to shame. It's true in every movie you go to see. It's not just the good guys and the bad guys. Sometimes, you know, Recently, and I didn't even watch this movie, but I kind of know what happened uh, about Superman and Batman, and one of them turns dark, and Superman, I think, becomes the bad guy. Did y'all see that movie? I don't know. I, I didn't see the movie. But one of them becomes like the bad guy, and then he becomes the good guy again. Okay? You get it? Uh, or sometimes a person is good, and then they go through a rough patch, and they lose their girlfriend or something, and then turns out that they're really they're really good again, and they, everything is restored, and they live happily ever after. Uh, this is Shakespeare. This is the Bible. This is our Hollywood movies. This motif of honor status reversal is all through our, culturals, our culture's literary and artistic uh, expressions. And so in the Bible, for example, well, let me say this. When a person or family or people have their honor status reversed, we've already talked about that. So in the next slide... I want you to see that there are two types of honor status reversal. You can start with honor, you can lose your honor or lose face, you can end up in shame, and then your honor can be restored. Or you can start without any honor. You can start in shame. You can be born in shame. In sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51. Okay? Uh, you can start in shame or dishonor, and then you can go to honor. So there's two types of honor reversal. You can start here, go down, come back up, or you can just start down and go up. The other type is the opposite. You can start with shame, you can be honored, and then end up in shame. Or you can start with honor and just end up in shame. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, what difference does this make? Well, let's look at some Bible examples of this, and I just think of these stories with me. Adam and Eve were created, and when they were created, God said, it's good. 
But then they didn't follow God's instruction. And they ended up in shame. Um, Abraham. You know, he was a, a follower of God. God loved Abraham. God uh, uh, chose Abraham. And, and then he wandered, sojourned. He doubted sometimes. Even he lied to Pharaoh <coughs> about his wife. He ended up in shame. Why didn't you trust me? And then his honor was restored. And the promises were given to him. Joseph, coat of many colors, honored by his father. Wonderful. Then he gets thrown into a pit and sold in slavery to Egypt. And then Potiphar's wife accuses him of something he didn't do. He gets thrown in prison. Shame. But then God restores his honor. Okay? And so on. And you can see these guys. Look at this next slide. Jesus himself went through this. In Philippians chapter 2, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a human. And not just any human, but the form of a servant, a bondservant. And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that's the ultimate shame. But if you don't stop at verse 8 and you continue to read through verse 11, yet God highly exalted him and put his name above every name so that in his name every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow that Jesus Christ is God, that he is Lord of all. Mark, <coughs> mm -hmm. you know, when Mel Gibson made the movie The Passion, there was so much focus on the pain of the cross. <coughs> and in the Western world, we have talked about the passion and the pain of the cross, but the scripture doesn't. It <laughs> focuses on who for the glory set before him scorned the cross and its shame. He scorned the cross and the shame. Hebrews chapter 13. 13. He scorned the cross, uh, despised the shame, and he overcame this. Okay? That's the... When I, got, when I watch it, every time you bring up the passion of the cross, uh, of, uh, the passion movie... I don't know what your reaction was. We got through with the reaction. I had tears running down my face. The light, the credits were rolling. The lights came on. And I just pounded the seat. And my wife says, what's wrong with you? And I said, they didn't finish the story. They left it here. And this is the end of the story. You know? That's not the gospel. The gospel does not end with the cross. <laughs> okay? The gospel is a restoring of honor. And they didn't finish the story. And, and I was angry about it, but anyway, it's all right. Uh, so, <laughs> almost by the, yeah, I was a little bit ashamed that they didn't do it. And so, I, I'm going to illustrate, now I'm going to talk more about the love side of this, and I, and I want to do this, and then I'm going to open it up for questions. We, we've got just a few minutes left, and I want you to sink your head into this for just a moment, because to me, if we're going to talk about a honor-shame gospel rather than a guilt-innocence gospel or just a love-forgiveness gospel, we're going to have to get our head around this. Okay? And so, as we talk about the Western paradigm of love, we talk about God as love. This is all biblical. Okay? It's all okay. There's nothing wrong with this. First uh, John 4.16, God is love. John 3.16, we can all quote that. God loved us so much He sent Jesus to die for us. Okay? Love, love. And when we get to John 15 and 1 John 3, it talks about greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for another. Boy, love is a theme in the gospel. Love is a theme in the message of God to humankind. There's no doubt about it. Don't hear me say otherwise. Love is a very important thing. 
it happens to be the one that we just major in. When we talk to people and we evangelize people, we want to talk about the love of Jesus. We want to talk about the love of Christ. We want to talk about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We go to football games and hold up John 3.16, okay? And, and, and all of this is so important to us, but to many people, it just goes right over their head. It doesn't apply to them. Okay, God loves us. So what? What difference does that make? That doesn't speak to me. That doesn't speak to where I am. Okay? Can you love somebody and not honor them? Maybe. Love and honor are not quite the same thing. Um, I remember growing up that, you know, I, I, I don't know how this applies. Uh, I, I knew my parents loved me, but I got punished a lot. Okay? And when I got older, the punishment changed, and I didn't like it too much. Um, instead of getting spankings, I, I grew up in an era where you got spankings, okay? Um, instead of getting spankings, uh, we got to be about, I got to be about 13. My dad changed from spanking me to saying how disappointed he was in me. Oh, just give me a spanking. Don't say that. Okay? And, and it got to where... I dishonored my God, uh, my, my dad, I dishonored my dad, you see where I'm going with this now, uh, I, I dishonored my dad by the way I behaved, and it wasn't just guilt, it was bringing dishonor to him. And I, I knew he loved me, but the honor, honoring my dad became very important to me. And there were times that I was tempted to do something wrong that I thought about, well, my dad would be disappointed if I did that. It wasn't about guilt and innocence. It was about honoring my dad, okay, and my mom. My dad was a preacher in the church, okay, so we had a lot at stake there. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was about honoring my dad and not necessarily just about the guilt and innocence of the whole thing, all right? And so I think we're still in this, do you love me, you know, type gospel, Maybe we need to grow, and I don't want to use the word that this is immature and that's mature, but can we grow deeper into the gospel where we understand the honor part and not just the love part? You see, to Christians, the cross is the ultimate manifestation of God's love for mankind. Anybody have a cross on right now? You wear a cross with great pride, you know, earrings, necklace, you know, put it on your Bibles, put it on your church buildings. You know, that means love. But you know what? To our Muslim friends and to other people, to Muslims, the cross is shameful. And it truly brings dishonor to God. How would God's prophet, the Muslims would say, or you and I might interpret, how would God allow his own son to die on a cross? Well, you say, well, it's simple. He loves us. It's not quite that simple, especially when honor is more important than love. Okay? And so... To the Muslims, this is shameful. Let me put you in their perspective, okay? I'm going to tell you a fictitious story. This isn't true. But I'm going to tell it for uh, the sake of illustration. My great-grandfather lived in West Texas. And, you know, he was a good man. Uh, everybody loved him. But he made his money by stealing cattle. And he would buy, he would steal somebody's cow, cow and then go sell it to the market and made this money. And he always had money and he always bought people stuff. And he was very generous. You know, I really respect my grandfather, you know. 
And, and you know, when they finally caught him stealing cows, they hung him Ooh. with a noose. And you know, when I think of a noose, I think of my grandfather, and I'm so proud of him. In fact, I've got a necklace with a noose around it. I'm telling a fictitious story. Okay? I've got a necklace with a noose around it that reminds me of my grandfather because I loved him a lot. And, you know, he was such a nice guy. And that noose just reminds me of how wonderful my grandfather was. Now, you're thinking, that's a stupid story. And that's exactly what the Muslims think of your story of the Jesus on the cross. That's exactly what they think. That's stupid. That you would say you honored Jesus by wearing a cross and thinking about the cross and you know, and the cross makes you think about the love of Jesus? That don't make no sense. Okay? And so that's the idea that we're two ships passing in the night and we never connect. But if we think about a paradigm of honor, we can tell the same gospel story in a different way. And not changing the gospel, it's just changing the emphasis on the syllable, okay? Uh, changing <laughs> changing the, uh, the emphasis of the story. Can we talk about the loyalty of Christ? Do you know what Matthew 26 is? It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And where Jesus goes into the garden, and he takes with him Peter, James, and John a little bit further, and, and, and they begin to pray. And Jesus is overheard to be praying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But, not my will, but your will be done. What is Jesus praying? Jesus praying a prayer of loyalty. He's praying a prayer of honor. He's praying a prayer of submission. He's saying, I don't really want to do it this way. Is there another way we can do it? But if not, I'll do it. And so Jesus obeys. He goes and he gets through praying. He walks out of the garden. He's arrested. He's tried, a fake trial, and he's crucified the next morning. All in submission. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't plead his innocence. He submits to God. The loyalty of Christ. God is honored by Jesus' obedience. We've already referred to Philippians 2. And so as you see this, the generosity of God is that he gives us. You see, Romans 6.23 is that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift. God honors us by giving us a free gift. And so denying the cross, God's greatest gift, is dishonoring God. In Asia in an honor-shame culture in the country of India, every time you go to somebody's house, you bring them a gift to honor them, to honor them for their hospitality. If I invite you over to my house for dinner, you bring a gift because you want to honor me for inviting you. You have, honored, you have been honored by me inviting you, so you honor me. 1980, 1990, my wife and I are about to leave for India. We're packing our bags. The flight leaves that night. People are coming by our house all during the day to say goodbye. Many tears are being shed. We're hugging people. We're saying goodbye to people. Our bags are packed, and all of them, not, not one or two of them, all of them bring gifts. And all of them are not small gifts. They're big. One lady brought a clock, and I'm not kidding. It was this big, okay? My bags are already packed. We're already overweight. we got two kids. we got stuff that we want to take back to America. And this lady brings this clock that's this big. Thank you, sister. Oh, we love the clock. Thank you so much. Thank you for honoring us. We're so honored to know you. 
Yes, we'll come back and visit. Yes, goodbye. What are we going to do with this clock? <laughs> we gave it to our neighbors. Okay? I, I, you know, she would have been dishonored if she knew that. But she was honoring us. And we accepted the gift. And, and so denying God's gift would be dishonoring God. Now, Muslims can understand that. Okay? In an honor-shame culture, I get that. I need to give you honor by accepting your gift. The cross was God's gift to mankind. And it restores our honor, so we need to honor God by accepting His greatest gift. Oh, now that's a gospel that'll preach in that context. And so, the blamelessness of God is there. God is blameless. Uh, these scriptures... Uh, that, that God is, is not going to be unfaithful. That God is going to be faithful in every aspect. Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 2, you know, this, this cross that's foolishness to the Gentiles and, and heresy to the Jews. This is the way God chose to honor us. And so God is blameless in the cross. And so the story does not end at the cross. God resurrects Jesus and thus honors Him and honors us through Him. And so God is blameless. He's not shameful in planning the cross. God is blameless. God is honorable in planning the cross. That's the way we present the cross of Jesus in an honor-shame culture. This is a gift God is giving you. It's not just shameful. He restores our honor. And so as we talk about this, Jesus reverses our status of shame to honor by taking on shame in our place and overcoming it. We always talk about, well, he takes our sins, and now he's made us innocent. Can we just switch the words a little bit and talk to it in terms of this? Jesus reverses our status, not just of guilt, but of shame, to honor by taking on shame and in our place overcoming it. This is what Jesus did, and this is me. I start with shame. But because of Jesus... I put it in a place of honor. Jesus started in a place of honor, took on shame for me, and then was honored by God. And this is God's gift. And I honor God by accepting that gift. And so this is the good news. This is the story we tell in honor-shame culture. This is the story we tell our Muslim friends. This is the story we tell our kids. Not teach them certain doctrines, not just rituals. We teach them to fall in love with Jesus, the one who restores our honor in the midst of shame. That's the story we tell our kids. And if we don't know that, if we don't teach that, then we're not sharing the good news. So this is the good news that the world needs to hear. The mission of God is to restore honor to His creation through Jesus Christ. Not just forgiveness. It's honor. And if we know a gospel of honor, then we have a message to preach. Okay? I'm through talking. Now, what do you want to ask about? we got about eight minutes. Yes? Campus Crusade has an app called God Tools that has a version of the four spiritual laws that is rewritten for honor shame. Mm -hmm. uh, the title of it, I think, is Regaining Honor. I think that's the name of the, the document, but it's, but it's on the app store's God Tools. Mm -hmm. 
there are a lot of tools. In fact, the literature is starting to catch up with this idea of honor shame. In fact, it's nowhere near completion, but there is a, a whole version of the Bible coming out with an honor shame emphasis. Okay? The book of Esther is already out. Uh, if you go to the blog, honorshame.com, and there will be a link to this Bible version. The book of Esther is already out. It's very interesting to read the book of Esther with honor shame glasses, not guilt innocent glasses. You know, God is not in the book of Esther, the word God, but he's all through it. Okay? And, and so if you read that, and by the way, I've been reading the Bible myself with an honor shame glasses on, and it's revealed some things to me I've never seen before. Okay? It's revealed to me some things that, that are deeper than I've ever thought about. Alright? Tomorrow we're going to talk about a couple of stories from Jesus from in this perspective of honor shame. And it's going to be revelatory. Okay? Uh, you're going to see things you haven't seen before. Alright? And we're going to talk about that a bit tomorrow. But just read the Bible with honor shame. You start with, with, and if you need some help, read this honor shame version of the Bible, uh, starting with the book of Esther maybe. Uh, and um, I think Jason Georges is the, uh, is the editor of this blog. And there's guest writers, Warner Mishka and, and some others have written this, but uh, this is very important. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you add or alter anything in a um, Eastern European, Ukrainian, Russian context? Yes, and I, I, I think I, I wouldn't be so, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Because, you know, <coughs> what we're talking about there is maybe a post-Christian, um, Eastern European, you know, where there was a lot of secularism or atheism, you know, that's part of the culture not necessarily every individual, but a part of the culture uh, of those societies. And when you talk about that, they have a lot of shame. Mm -hmm. And they have, you know, they don't really know, maybe, maybe they have guilt too, but they have a lot of shame built up that has brought, you know, the people know what kind of person they are, the people know what they've done, and they have this shame, they've lost face, and Jesus takes that away. That's the good news. That's the good news for me and you. Let me tell you, the plight of the American churches of Christ... <coughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I grew up in the Church of Christ, so I can say that. And you know, you with a quarter and a cup, uh, you can't buy a cup of coffee for a quarter. But five dollars, you can go to Starbucks and get a cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, but I can say this: the plight of the American Church of Christ, at least one of them, is that we we are quick with forgiveness. We still carry the shame. Mm -hmm. We still carry the shame. And until we can allow Jesus to take not just the guilt through forgiveness, but to allow Jesus to take away the shame, we will never be able to preach with confidence this gospel. Uh, in the in the eastern part of the world, uh, I mean, Eastern Orthodox, mm -hmm. they have always placed much more emphasis on the problem of sin being the loss of the divine spark, the, the image of God. And salvation is more about restoring God's image in us, what they would refer to as divinization. Okay. Uh, that our godness, our image, the Imago Dei, is restored in us. And we, in the West, we think very much about the fall. That Adam and Eve broke the rules and it was the fall. Instead of that they lost the glory of being in the presence of God. 
and it's the quest for the restor restoration of, of human glory. Uh, we, we don't notice much when Paul talks about, or Re Revelation will talk about, how we will reign with him. Or when Jesus will say to the 12 tribes, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12. The, the restoration of honor and glory. Um, if you want to understand Russian foreign policy, they don't mind breaking a few eggs to make an omelet because the glory of the Russian people is worth the inhumanity of the way that the Syrians are being treated. Mm -hmm. Because one person's experience is inconsequential compared with the honor that we as Russian people should be able to have because we too are a great empire and the quest for the Russians to have equal standing in the world with the great world empires is what drives Putin. And, and if you want to look at Korean foreign policy and what's going on there, I mean, insulting the honor uh, of the other opponent, I mean, we, we just don't quite get that. But the gospel is all about where do you find God showing up? He's not showing up in Rome. He's not showing up in Jerusalem. He's showing up in Bethlehem. He's showing up in an oppressed people. And it's all about restoring honor. God lifting up, God's glory being revealed among the powerless because we have century after century after century of oppressive ruler who's used violence to dominate the world and to dishonor everybody else. And then they're toppled in another one and another one and another one. And Jesus comes and says, it's a whole new way of operating. And yeah. honor arises from the servant and from the lowliest. And the mighty are brought down and the lowly are lifted up. And that's good news. And that reminds me last summer when we were working with so many of these refugees coming from the Middle East and Greece. And I heard so many of them say, we are tired of violence. We are tired of war. Muhammad is a man of war. He carried a sword. But Jesus was a man of peace. We need Jesus. We need peace. And this longing for um, honor and they were so shocked when they got to Europe got to Greece and found out that their enemies were washing their feet cooking them meals serving them in the name of Jesus that's what was bringing them to Jesus not arguments not polemics um, uh, not apologetics but honoring people who were their enemies and who treated them with dignity when their fellow Muslims and Arabs were not there for them and treated them like refuse. That's how you win the hearts of people from that shame background. And that's just living out the gospel. Every person is made in the image of God. And to show that honor. And where do you see God? On a cross? Because there's no place that's so dishonorable that God cannot raise that person up in value. Until we understand that, we are going to really struggle in the United States and most of the rest of the world. One quick political illustration. Back in the 1990s, I don't know if you all remember that far back, but uh, there was a man named Saddam Hussein in Iraq and Baghdad, mm -hmm. and George Bush the first, George W.H. Bush, the one that's, you know, uh, he, he gave an ultimatum, give up your weapons of mass destruction or we're going to attack you. Now, and, and so it puts Saddam Hussein in a no-win situation, okay? He didn't have any weapons of mass destruction. We found out later, okay? But he couldn't lose face in front of the Americans. That he would be, he would be kneecapped as a leader, okay? And so he had to stand up to, to Bush's threats or lose face. That was his only two options. So, of course, he's not going to give up anything. 
He's going to continue to defy the Americans, and we attacked him, and the rest is history. Second example is today, North Korea, Kim Jong-un, whatever his name is. Um, all he wanted was honor and respect, or that's all he wants. Uh, he doesn't want to blow anybody up, really. I don't think he does. Uh, and Trump is starting to look like, your political things aside, uh, he's starting to look, to, to look smart by giving him a seat at the table. He didn't give him an ultimatum, except he gave him some And he's getting honor now, and things are calming down a little bit. Okay? And so it's, it goes back to this is what the whole world wants. And the only way you can get that is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can get it, because we are all shameful. Okay? Yes, sir. You know, Mark, uh, some of this stuff might just seem like uh, philosophy to, to, the, to the class. Uh, but, uh, for instance, uh, without really knowing how, what I was doing, went to my next-door neighbor who was Buddhist and uh, Laotian, got to studying with her, didn't really know how to stay with a Buddhist, but because I'd been a missionary in Africa, knew some things about Eastern thought. Three months later, she was baptized and stayed with the church. And, um, and then you've come and introduced some of these things back from your experience as being a missionary. And, and it's not just what you're going to do over in another country. It's, it's what what are you going to do here with with your neighbor that's from another country? I called I called down to Mark uh, Brazel and Dottie, and since I already didn't call you back, we're in a study with some Muslims. Uh, they, they work at, at uh, Mission Resource, too. So this isn't just philosophy for... Well, Johnny, you may have you missed know, the introduction, but yeah. I, I said that. Yeah. I, I know, I know you <laughs> These did, people just, are coming to you. But I'm just saying, this is what you guys are doing. Yeah. You guys are doing this, uh, what you mm -hmm. learned in the mission field, back into America. And it works. And, 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 and we, can, we can go to these people with confidence. Yeah. Let's, let's end in a prayer. Let's ask God to bless us with, with open, with wider eyes. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity to, to know you through your son Jesus. And Father, you have given us honor by calling us your children. Uh, you have restored our honor through Jesus uh, and through the gospel, through, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has given us great honor. And we accept that gift from you and we want to give you the gift of our lives. And we want to honor you with the way we live. And Father, help us to see the true depth of the gospel that will speak to not just people that feel guilty of what they've done but people who feel shame in what they've done the people that may resort resort to violence because of what they've done and help us to share the the message of jesus the message of jesus that restores our honor that restores our worthiness that restores our sense of purpose and fulfillment and being to be the creation that you want us to be. Father, help us to have that understanding. Give us those words. Through your spirit, guide our mouths and guide our actions to lead others into the honor and the glory that is in your name through Christ. And it's in him we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.